0: Hello and welcome to episode number five of The Beethoven Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to take a look at two of the piano sonatas from Beethoven's Opus 2. Having dedicated his first published set of pieces, The Piano Trios, to one of his patrons, Beethoven dedicates this set of piano sonatas to his teacher Haydn, who may well have expected that honor for the Opus 1 trios. Nevertheless, the three sonatas are all worthy pieces, and although there's no record one way or the other, I think we can assume that Haydn approved of these works. And, of course, Beethoven, in writing works for piano alone, was back on solid ground. It would be unfair to say his writing for strings in the Opus 1 piano trios was amateurish, but it was seldom fluent, and at times it seems as if he were simply casting about for material with which he could keep the strings busy. But now, writing for piano alone, nothing could be more natural for Beethoven. The first movement of the first sonata in F minor in duple meter in marked allegro begins softly with a familiar sort of motive, a skyrocket type quick ascent up the F minor triad following a pickup note on the fifth scale degree, an opening which obviously summons up the allegro section in the first movement of his piano quartet in E flat major which we looked at in episode number two. After reaching the top of this rapid arpeggio, we descend down a third to the tonic with a quick little triplet-based curl. This little descending curl will play a very important role in the movement as we proceed, much more so than one might initially expect. The left hand comes in on the second beat of bar 2 with three F minor block chords, clearly establishing the tonic. Beethoven then repeats this two-measure idea up a step, harmonized this time by a dominant seventh chord. The next three bars are taken up with repetitions of the triplet-based curl motive, which is moved up and down over an alternation of dominant and tonic harmonies. We then hear a couple of new measures directing us to a fermata on the dominant chord. Let's hear it that much. So, the ascending triad motive plays an important role in the first melodic statement, the first subject, but the descending triplet curl motive plays an even greater role. What we hear next initially seems as if it's a repeat of the opening theme starting on C minor, the minor dominant. But it soon becomes clear that we're actually hearing the modulatory transition. The skyrocketing triad idea disappears quickly, but the triplet curl is more stubborn, and we hear it five times in five measures. But it too eventually yields to a gently syncopated figure which seems to direct us to E-flat major. (laughs) I said, seems to direct us to E flat major. If it really did, it would be a bit of a surprise, because according to the conventions of sonata form in the classic period, the next key to be established is supposed to be the relative major of F minor, which would be A flat major. And yet we seem to have landed on E flat major. Almost immediately, however, we begin to experience that E flat chord, especially after a minor seventh has been tacked onto it, not as the tonic in E flat. But as the dominant chord in the key of A flat. And we also experience a new melodic idea, which turns out to be the opening gesture of the second subject. It's basically just a descending arpeggiation of the dominant seventh chord built on E flat that is approached from above by an F flat, which obviously creates a dissonance against the E flats heard in the left hand accompaniment beneath it. That descending arpeggio is heard three times in the first five bars of the second subject and it's so prominent that we almost don't notice when it resolves to the real tonic chord of a flat major in part because we never hear a root position a flat major chord and we normally expect to hear a root position chord to confirm a new key You probably noticed that after the descending arpeggiation motive is exhausted, a new motive is introduced, three eighth notes starting on an upbeat, which first skip upwards and then come back down by step, although the exact shape of the motive varies. It moves around, often ascending sequentially by step, and eventually crescendoing to forte, like this. Even though this motive contrasts strongly with the descending dominant seventh triad motive, we're probably going to hear it as the second half of the second subject. But as you also heard in my last example, this idea gives way to a third new idea, one whose prominent features are probably its new left-hand figure, a repeated syncopated quarter-half-quarter rhythm marked by a strong accent on the syncopated middle note, although not terribly noticeable in the recording I'm using, to be honest, and its dynamic fluctuations. Insofar as we can identify a closing section for this exposition, this is it. But the passage is a short one, only eight bars long, and then yet another du-melodic idea is introduced, a two-measure motive which repeats in various guises three times to set up the final cadence on A flat. We're going to call it the codetta. Here's the so-called closing section heading into the brief Codetta. It's quite an interesting exposition, fairly sparse and exposed in its textures. The development section starts off as if it's just a transposition of the first theme to A flat, and then moves on to the second theme in B flat minor. Not surprisingly, it modulates around from there, using mostly the same materials or variants of them, and touching on C minor and other keys. Here's a bit of the development section. Perhaps the most singular feature of the development occurs near the end. We have established ourselves on the dominant 7th chord in the original key of F minor and expect at any second to be ushered into the recapitulation with a repeat of the opening subject in F minor. And that does happen, eventually, but not before Beethoven brings back that triplet-bass curl motive from the original modulatory transition. It sneaks in very quietly, pianissimo over a series of repeated staccato quarter notes in thirds in the left hand, quarter notes that contain struck suspensions which yield up some surprisingly sharp dissonances. He repeats the triplet bass motives heard six times altogether and increasing in volume along the way, until we finally find ourselves in the recapitulation with the return of the first subject in the original tonic of F minor, which, it seems, has managed to slip in through the back door although I must admit it sneaks in rather confidently at forte rather than the original dynamic level of piano. Here is the section in question heading into the recapitulation. As you heard, the recapitulation begins conventionally enough, and it proceeds that way as well. The modulatory transition is doctored so that it quickly makes its way back to F minor, and the second subject, now in F minor rather than A flat major, does not sound dramatically different. The transitional passage that I referred to earlier as a possible closing section is basically replicated in the new key, as is the codetta. This movement does not show a separate coda after the codetta, and we close somewhat predictably, although rather noisily, with full chords in both hands, offbeats, for and a final fortissimo cadence, a surprisingly rousing finish for a movement that had until that point been sparing in its grandiose gestures. The slow movement in the key of F major, 3-4 time, and marked adagio, begins with a noble melody, characterized in the first bar, by an initial leap of a major sixth, an elegant ornamental turn, an accented non-harmonic tone on the second beat, and a graceful descent down the scale, harmonized in parallel sixths. All of these elements, present in the very first measure, are to play an important role later in the movement, in various forms. Here's the first phrase, ending on the dominant. The next four-bar phrase begins much like the first. The ascending major sixth lead-in is now filled in with an ascending chromatic line. You heard a little of that in my last example. And measure five duplicates measure one with a slightly fuller texture. The last three measures of the phrase, however, are different. Instead of continuing down the scale, as in bar two of the first phrase, Beethoven now leaps up another major sixth to a line which continues to ascend, peaking a step above the upper tonic before it begins its ornamental descent to a cadence back on F major. In general, the harmonic underpinnings for this initial melodic statement, the first eight measures, are quite simple, but the use of accented non-harmonic tones, particularly in the second phrase, adds more than a little emotional nuance. Here is the second four-bar phrase. I'm not going to try to document every new melodic idea that Beethoven presents as we continue, but I do want to mention one or two more. The next melodic idea also begins with an upbeat lead-in, this time an ascending perfect fourth, which is then repeated on the downbeat to create an achingly effective non-harmonic tone against a dominant seventh chord. The phrase now reaches higher, above a crescendo, floating over alternating dominant and tonic chords until it descends again to what is, in essence, a variant of the first bar of the phrase. It then reaches higher again, before beginning a rambling descent, suddenly pianissimo, down the scale, before borrowing the melodic motive from the opening bar of the movement, as the dominant seventh chord finally resolves to tonic once again. The next three bars function as an extension, introducing a dotted 8th-16th rhythmic figure that will play a major role in the next section. It all has a somewhat improvisatory flow to it, and as before, accented non-harmonic tones continue to play a major role in defining the almost sensuous mood. Here is the second melodic statement starting on the dominant and eventually making its way back to tonic. The middle section of the movement presents our first real tonal contrast. After the briefest of pauses, and introduced by the familiar turn figure we've heard several times before, we find ourselves in D minor. Melodically, the dotted note motive, previewed in the last section, now becomes the dominant one, but the turn motive from the first measure of the movement continues to play an important part. The texture also changes significantly. The left hand moves up to the treble clef with a series of three-note, offbeat sixteenth notes, doubled in thirds. Eventually, we begin to gravitate towards C major. Meanwhile, the repeated dotted eighth sixteenth note figures have disappeared, replaced by an increasingly free, highly embroidered, cadenza-like flow of undulating thirty-second notes. The motives from the opening two measures of the movement do eventually reappear, but now juxtaposed with new ideas— including sixteenth note triplet figures often split between right and left hands. Here is this new section right as we move into D minor through to the key of C major and heading back to the original key of F major where the opening measure is represented. The return of the opening measure heralds the return of the first section of the movement, but it is by no means an exact recapitulation. It is varied considerably by the inclusion of some new ideas, along with ideas introduced in the middle section, including the long, rhapsodic flow of thirty-second notes and the shared triplet figures, now heard in sixteenth notes and thirty-second notes. Nevertheless, it is clearly recognizable as a return to the original idea and rounds off the form gracefully. The third movement, Menuetto, in A flat major three four time and marked Allegretto, and frequently described as a scherzo in style, is admirably economical in its motivic organization. Here is the first fourteen bar section. The first four bars, especially the first two, tell most of the story. Approached from below by an upbeat pickup note on the tonic, the melody, harmonized in sixths, drops a third, all in quarter notes and followed by a quarter rest. The last four bars of the first section introduces a new idea, featuring a distinctive descending leap of a sixth to bring about a modulation to A-flat major by the end of the section. The second section of the minuetto is longer, but relies on many of the same melodic motives, although this time the right-hand melody is harmonized in thirds, echoed by the left hand in contrary motion, and introduces some new chromatic chords as it heads toward B flat minor. There are more dynamic contrasts here, and at one point we break into a rather robust fortissimo passage in octaves, which meanders around a bit before establishing us in the new key of C minor. The last part of the second section returns us to something very much like the opening bars, with those falling thirds once again prominent. But the texture has thickened, new accented downbeats have been added, and the melody has become a bit more ornamented. Still, the final measures of the second section mirror the final measures of the first section, a typical arrangement in a minuet, although we now end in F minor. Here is the second section without repeat. The trio, which begins in a gentle F major, presents some new ideas, but the flow of eighth notes, first in the right hand and then in the left, does resemble a softer, less aggressive version of the eighth note passage from the second section of the minuet proper. The second section of the trio continues the flowing eighth notes, but soon thickens the texture by creating a stream of first inversion chords which swells to fortissimo before retreating back to a softer series of chords. The last part of the trio returns us to the simple unadorned eighth note flow and cadences on F major to prepare us for the repeat of the minuet. Here's the entire trio, it's not that long, with the repeats but without going back to the repeat of the minuet section. The finale, back in F minor, breve and marked Prestissimo, is of course a more formidable movement. Whereas the opening movement of the sonata was lightly textured for the most part, this movement is solid, even texturally dense. As more than one commentator has pointed out, it's as if Beethoven had taken the final two robust cadential chords from the end of the first movement and elevated them to the status of a major thematic idea in the finale. The first thing we hear is the left hand, starting us off with rapid, driving triplet arpeggios, and then the cadential chords enter, softly at first, but then alternating loud and soft. The second part of the first subject is quite different. We return to piano, and the texture thins out dramatically, and a new melodic idea is introduced, not Beethoven's most remarkable, but successful enough in terms of providing a contrast with a turbulent opening. Now, at least for the moment, we're in A-flat major, the melody consisting primarily of repeated notes, an ascending leap of a fourth, and a scale-wise ascent. This new idea is then repeated down a third, pushing us back toward F minor. Some chromatic movement in the left hand then pushes us toward a G major chord, which a new series of triplet arpeggios in the left hand drives into our consciousness. Soon the seventh is added to the G major chord, and we realize that the goal is not G major, but G major acting as the dominant of C minor, and we're in the middle of a modulatory transition. Let's hear that much, the entire first subject, both parts, and the modulatory transition, which is about to deposit us into C minor. We've mentioned in an earlier podcasts that in the typical sonata form in a minor key, the second subject is usually in the relative major. But we also know from previous episodes that that doesn't always happen. And it doesn't happen here, because the second subject is most certainly in the key of C minor, the minor dominant in the key of F minor. It is, however, a C minor that seems to want to lean in the direction of A flat major, the expected key, from time to time. This second theme is itself triplet-dominated. It's almost as if the rapid, primarily ascending, left-hand accompanying triadic arpeggios of the first subject have now become the primary melodic element in the form of repeated descending triads in the second. But the situation is not really so simple, because the left-hand counter-melody which doubles the first note of each triplet down an octave to produce a repeated, gradually descending two bar phrase may strike the ear as having the stronger claim. Here is the second subject. Is there a separate and unique closing section following this second subject? Yes, a new section is introduced after the second subject concludes on a solid cadence in C minor, but it is not completely unique. The dynamic level now drops to piano and the texture does again change somewhat. The main melodic idea is clearly being expressed in octaves in the right hand, but against it the rapid arpeggio-based triplets continue, now back in the left hand. This new melody in the right hand is not a particularly remarkable one. Its main accomplishment is a descent in quarter notes down the scale by step initially from E flat where it begins to G. Then a similar pattern is repeated up a sixth starting on C and then again starting on G, after which the entire series repeats. Against this, the arpeggio based triplets in the left hand keep churning away showing a bit of slow-motion melodic activity of their own, steadily ascending against the descending line above it. The triplets in the left hand continue, but above them we soon hear a return of those emphatic cadential chords from the opening of the movement, all the more emphatic at fortissimo, in a codetta like section that takes us to the end of the exposition. Here is the closing section and codetta which takes us right back to the beginning of the exposition. It is almost with a sense of relief when we enter the development section and find that the pulsating triplet accompaniment has been abandoned. In fact, the mood seems to have become, at least initially, almost serene, with a broadly lyrical melody unfolding in A-flat major over quarter-note block chords in the left hand on beats 2, 3, and 4. As you can hear the melody, which grows somewhat busier and more ornate as it develops, doesn't show a particularly obvious resemblance to anything in the exposition, either in general character or in melodic detail, although some aspects of the second part of the first subject and the closing section seem to be echoed here. There is some modulating going on here, as you would expect in a development section, but even in this area, it's quite a while before we experience the sort of urgency that a listener would usually anticipate. Near the end of my excerpt you heard an inkling of the first subject, those repeated cadential chord pairs that began the movement. But initially it's just an inkling. The key is A flat major, dynamic level is pianissimo, and only the top notes of the motive, which was originally presented harmonized in the full block chords, Only the top notes are presented in octaves. But the motive sticks around. It's repeated and then heard again on different pitch levels as Beethoven begins to work his way back to the original key of F minor. The motive is heard there as well, but still quietly and lacking the punch of the original context. But eventually the tension we've been waiting for begins to materialize. Sforzandos abound, and we slip into a dominant 7th chord on C, Eventually, the minor ninth is added to give it even more intensity. By then, the familiar 8th note triplet arpeggios have again taken hold, although, against expectations in this sort of situation, Beethoven actually decrescendos into the return of the original first subject. Here's the end of the development section, moving into the recapitulation. Having arrived at the recapitulation, it comes as no surprise when, in fact, the modulatory transition is different this time around. After all, we're not modulating to C minor, but rather staying in F minor, and Beethoven, in order to accomplish this non-modulation, develops a graceful descending scale figure that was no more than hinted at in the exposition. The closing section follows in due course, and beethoven alters the earlier coda to better suit the new tonal circumstances and the movement ends in a blaze of triplets we're going to skip now to opus 2 number 3 the sonata in c major the first movement in common time and marked allegro con brio begins with one of those musical ideas which is hard to describe without making it sound more complicated than it really is We're first presented with a half note on the 3rd scale degree over the tonic chord. It's ornamented a bit with lower and upper neighbor tones, first in 16th notes and then in eighths. the lower voice moving in parallel thirds with it. In the second measure, the 3rd scale degree then moves down a step and then up a perfect 4th, outlining part of a dominant chord. Here's a slowed down version of the opening measure. There seems to be a lot of motion here, but relatively little movement. We've really only moved from an ornamented third scale degree down a step and then up a perfect fourth. But the idea is not completely devoid of character, in part because of the distinctive articulation pattern, the slurred sixteenths going to the staccato eighth notes, and in part because even at the dynamic level of piano, there is an admirable fullness to the texture. In fact, in his very insightful book, The Beethoven Sonatas and the Creative Experience, Kenneth Drake discusses this sonata in a chapter entitled The Cosmopolitan Imposter, in which he refers to it as a brawny piece in which to pretend that the piano, played by ten fingers, is equal to an orchestra of sixty or seventy players. So the level of sonority is impressive. What actually happens to the musical idea itself? Let's hear the first 12 measures in a real performance. Obviously the opening two-bar melodic statement, or a close variant of it, dominates for several measures, first in the right hand and later in the left. There are a couple of new ideas exposed, for example the eighth note triplets in the left hand which embellish a cadence, but there's really not much melodic contrast going on. But we do hear some powerful effects as we approach the cadence which concludes this first theme, most notably the weak-beat sforzandos, which Beethoven introduces near the end of the passage. By the way, at the end of my excerpt, you heard Beethoven move into a vigorous figuration pattern, initially based on a descending scale line, which seems to represent the beginning of the modulatory transition. Beethoven introduces some new melodic fragments in the right hand after the pattern exhausts itself, but it actually takes quite a while before we feel that we finally modulated to the dominant. And when the second subject does arrive, we are probably a little surprised to find ourselves in G minor and met with a very different sort of theme. Here's an excerpt beginning near the end of the modulatory transition. the second subject is actually quite restless. By the fourth bar it starts to tilt towards C minor and then begins a pattern based on a descending bass line that ends up taking us to A minor briefly as the left-hand accompaniment switches from broken chord arpeggios to pulsating eighth notes in thirds before being yanked back to G minor. But after we de-escalate the level of tension with a reduction in texture and a delicately prolonged dominant 7th chord, we are introduced to the closing section and a new theme, much more placid in nature and in the key of G major, which we expected in the first place. It's marked Dolce, and it's really no more than a two-bar ascent and descent of first the G major triad and then its dominant 7th. The pattern is soon extended to other chords, and characterized by sweeping crescendos and decrescendos, and altogether it represents an effective contrast with what has come before. As you heard near the end of my excerpt, we are not completely finished with what has come before. We hear a vigorous transitional section that brings back the figuration pattern from the original modulatory transition in a new, even more striking and robust version, which finally winds down right before the brief and rather quiet opening bars of the codera. There's not much to the codera, really only a trill-ornamented two-bar cadence figure, and after we hear it, and its extension three times, we are back to an orchestral effect, thundering fortissimo octaves in both hands, which brings the exposition to a close. The development section is an interesting one. It begins quietly by playing with the little trill-laden codetta theme and goes on to a series of dramatic fortissimo harmonic gestures, most based on triadic arpeggios in the right hand, but grounded by closely spaced sound chords in the lower range of the left hand, the sort of sonority that Beethoven was by no means the originator of, but which he effectively made an important part of his style. The first theme does soon figure into the development section, of course, particularly beats 3 and 4 of the opening measure, which he splits off and tosses around on various pitch levels. The recapitulation enters quietly with the first theme. The modulatory transition is, of course, a bit different this time, and the second subject now occurs in C minor. There is a bit of a coda this time, consisting of expansive triadic arpeggios at one point, a series of diminished 7th chords, leading to a cadenza, which further reinforces the idea that the whole movement is in the style of an orchestral work, specifically a piano concerto. Following the cadenza, the first theme is brought back and toyed with momentarily, after which another series of thundering octaves in 16th notes deliver us to the final cadence. The second movement in 2-4 and marked Adagio, begins in a surprising E major with a quiet, delicate little melody starting on a dotted sixteenth note on the third of the chord and moving by step, first below and then above, before ending on the second scale degree, harmonized by the dominant chord. This idea is then repeated a third lower, starting on the tonic. In measures three and four, the melody begins to make hesitant advances up the scale, only to revert back to the fifth scale degree and the dominant chord each time. The original melodic idea is repeated twice more as we sidestep into F sharp minor briefly. And then Beethoven introduces a new syncopated motive, tied across the bar line, unfolding in pairs with the second note moving up a step. This new motive continues in the left hand, while the right hand reaches into the higher octave with a pair of leaps, but it quickly becomes earthbound again, and the section ends on an emphatic dominant seventh back in E major, which is poised to launch us into the next section. Here are the first ten bars. This movement is sometimes described as in rondo form, but it's actually just an alternation of two different, contrasting sections which recur in varied form. This second section or B section begins in E minor, but soon moves to G major. Initially, the main melodic activity is in the form of a series of ascending and descending arpeggios and broken third patterns in the right hand. But the patterns are made more interesting because they so frequently employ accented non-harmonic tones into the mix, complicating, if not obscuring, the harmonic implications from time to time. After a couple of measures, a new descending scale fragment is added over this initial pattern. This descending scale fragment is then replaced by a new syncopated motive, a bit different than the one we heard earlier. It comes in the left hand, but split between treble and bass clef. It begins with a sixteenth note on the downbeat in the bass clef, but quickly moves to the treble clef range with an accent eighth on the offbeat, followed by another sixteenth, usually a step higher. Here's an excerpt of the second section showing first the ascending and descending arpeggios, then those same arpeggios with the descending scale fragments I mentioned earlier, and finally, a few measures later, the syncopated figure I just mentioned. relatively quiet passage comes to an end as we plunge into A minor and a return of the arpeggiated chords, freely embellished with non-harmonic tones. Soon the descending scale fragments return as the dynamics fluctuate between piano and forte, and then the syncopated figure just mentioned does as well. After a crescendo surge, the section quiets in the last measure and we experience a return of the first section, back in E major. Just as this section approaches its cadence, we are then subjected to a rather abrupt fortissimo deceptive cadence resolution to C major, which ushers us into the repetition of the B section. It's a shortened version this time, and in the end cadences on E major to prepare us for the final return of the A section. It too is altered, introducing some new distinctive rhythmic interplay between right and left hands, and there are a few more dramatic changes in dynamics before we are delivered to the final quiet cadence. The third movement, a scherzo in C major, is a jaunty one in a quick triple meter with the opening motive tossed back and forth among the different voices, very much in the manner of a string quartet. It is not completely guileless, however, almost immediately beginning a flirtation with G minor, although settling down in the end to a final chord on G major, as the dominant of C major. There is more motivic play in the second section. The first four notes of the theme are sometimes split off and developed separately, as Beethoven toys with C minor and gives us some mock-dramatic, offbeat sforzando accents. The trio is very different relying on sweeping triadic arpeggio patterns in the right hand, and a slow-moving, almost lugubrious melody in the left. For the most part, it sticks to A minor initially, but in the longer second section gets a bit more adventurous, touching briefly on D minor before working its way back home for a repeat of the scherzo section in a brief coda. Here is the trio section. finale in C major, 6-8 meter marked Allegro Asai, and often described as a sonata rondo, begins quietly, as did the first movement, but with rather full sonorities. As a series of first inversion staccato triads climb up the scale, falling back only slightly at the end to conclude on a secondary dominant, a chord functioning as the dominant seventh of the dominant chord in the key of C. The pattern then is basically repeated, starting a fourth lower. This wonderfully playful melodic statement, which anticipates Mendelssohn's later fairy music style to some extent, is the first part of a three-part refrain theme. The second part, a little longer at ten bars, is quite different. The right hand delivers a series of rapid, undulating scale fragments in an ascending pattern, against which the left hand in three-part chords contributes a slower moving melody in descending three note segments. Here's the second part, the little b section going into the A' prime section, which brings back the original idea but adapts it to head toward D major for the first episode. At the end of my excerpt, you heard just the beginning of the first episode. It is perhaps a little less interesting than the refrain theme, as you might expect in a rondo, and begins with repeated two-bar phrases that are no more than arpeggiations of dominant chords going to tonic chords in the new key of G. The sonorities are again quite full, at least at the beginning, with chordal arpeggios in the left hand, which include some double-thirds. But after six bars, the texture changes dramatically, to relatively sparse octaves as we move toward E minor. After five measures of this more austere texture, we return to the more euphonious arpeggios, but we now begin to head to G minor, where we again revert to the octaves. Here's a little of the first episode. The texture eventually fattens up a little as we go on, and soon G minor is transformed into G major in another reduced texture passage, and we are then delivered to the original refrain theme. We hear the first part of the refrain theme, but not the second, the little b section. Instead, we begin a fairly extensive development section, which starts by quoting the first part of the refrain in the left hand, and then proceeds to a much freer development of ideas from the refrain mixed in with some new ideas, including a number of catchy rhythmic motives exchanged between the hands. Here's a little of that section, starting with the return of the refrain theme and continuing into the development of that theme. After this development section, bandies about some older motivic ideas, along with some new ones, while modulating around somewhat in the process, we are then introduced to another highly contrasting episode, exhibiting a broad new melodic idea unfolding in slower-moving dotted quarter notes ascending up a triad. We happen to be in F major at this point, and then back down again by step. The main melodic idea then switches to the left hand in octaves against offbeat eighth note accompaniment from the right hand. This gives way to a nice little syncopated section in staccato eighth notes before returning to the more broadly melodic theme. Here's a bit of it. Both ideas combine in an effective retransition back to the refrain theme, which comes back in C major with all three parts intact, although effectively varied, sometimes against sustained trills. There is even a coda with a number of stop starts and some coquettish final quotations of the refrain theme, and lots of trills, including a triple trill that is sustained for a couple of measures, one of many technical challenges that abound in this sonata. Here is the coda and conclusion. (laughs) (laughs) ¶¶ It's a wonderful, fanciful, and imaginative movement, almost the complete opposite of the dramatic and motivically intense first movement of the F minor sonata, but in its own way every bit as successful. These two sonatas, and we haven't even considered the second of the set, the A major sonata, which has been praised for its grace and charm by innumerable commentators, these two sonatas demonstrate more than anything else composed to this point the degree to which Beethoven was already a composer in a category by himself, not just an heir to the tradition of Mozart and Haydn, but a unique musical personality to be reckoned with. For our next episode, we'll take a look at two very different works a cello sonata from Opus 5 and a string trio from Opus 9. <music>